Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books and Political Science. I'm Susan Lee Bell, and I'm delighted to welcome Catherine Frankie to discuss Repair, Redeeming the Promise of Abolition, published by Haymarket Books in 2019. Catherine is a James L. Doerr Professor of Law at Columbia University and the Chair of the Board of Trustees of the Center for Constitutional Rights. Welcome to the New Books Network, Catherine. Susan, it's wonderful to join you. You've written a short rich and ambitious book that challenges Americans to face our collective responsibility for ongoing racial inequality, rather than fall back on what you call a palliative history that emphasizes granting freedom and rights after the Civil War, you insist that we acknowledge the failure to provide any meaningful reparation to the formerly enslaved people in the 1860s. Further, that failure has ongoing structural effects today. And the book aims to replot this history by presenting two remarkable examples of post-war property regimes in the Sea Islands of South Carolina and the Davis Bend, uh, Mississippi. And you detail the successes and failures of these communities in which freed people governed and organized their labor with much more autonomy. Um, And interesting as this history is, that's not your purpose. You're not just trying to reflect on what was lost, but to enhance modern calls for reparations. Um, You see what you call the atrocity of slavery as a festering national wound, and the book concludes with suggestions for modern reparation strategies, especially rethinking property as a keystone to um, other civil and political rights. I'd like to start with a distinction that you make that I found so helpful, which is this notion of free versus freed people. And you talk about a binary that we often think of as a free man as the opposite of a slave, and the free man has robust and full rights, but a freed man is somehow different. And I was wondering if you could start us off by explaining this distinction that you make. Well, one of the things that became so apparent to me as I was doing the um, the primary research for this book is that there was really a third category in between those people who were enslaved and those who were free. And it was this condition of having been freed. And I saw in the really the granularity of, of everyday life for formerly enslaved people, both after the Civil War, but actually during the war, as they were being gradually emancipated through a range of different processes, that a new civil status was being created at the same time that we were ending this institution of slavery, we were creating a new civil status of people who were freed, but were not entirely free. And they were kind of locked into this structurally subordinate status that I think we're still living with today. And, and so, so much of the book is a, is, a, is a historical sort of query about what would it make Black people in this country to be truly free? Because we never really freed them. We merely ended the institution of slavery. 
And I should note that in the book, the D in uh, freed man is italicized. And it, it is this incredibly subtle but meaningful way of communicating this sliding scale, this 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 sort of no man's land um, in which there is an, an inferiority continues even though there's been this formal declaration of rights. Um, throughout the book, law really figures centrally in how you're conceptualizing what it means to be free and what it means to have rights. I, I was wondering if you'd say a little bit about um, your background, the kind of scholarship that you've done, um, and the methods. You mentioned the primary documents and the the detail, and the detail in this book is simply stunning. This is I don't normally say this about new books in political science. It's a page turner because of the kinds of quotes, the kinds of photographs that you have. So can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your work and how that brought you to this project um, and the kind of sources and things that you use to, to do this project? Well, thank you for that question. Um, and if anybody has spent any time in archives looking at historical materials, you would know that it becomes a, such a seductive enterprise. You Once you gain this kind of intimacy with people's lives and seeing the papers that they signed and the documents they filled out and the, the real material evidence of their lives, it's just so compelling. So um, I, I had to drag myself out of the archives to actually write the book. But the, the initial interest in this, in this question of reparations and the, the inadequate or sort of partial freedom that we gave to formerly enslaved people grew out of the book that I wrote before Repair, um, Wedlocked. And in, in that book, I was interested in what it meant for formerly enslaved people to elaborate new free selves through the institution of marriage and whether their experiences with marriage might teach us something about what it meant for same-sex couples today to um, imagine a freer and more equal life um, through the institution of marriage. And, you know, it turned out there were really compelling parallels, um, uh, although the circumstances, of course, are completely different of, of what Black people were going through uh, at the end of the Civil War and what same-sex couples are going through today. But um, but it was in doing that work that um, I spent so much time in archives and I started to see the second book emerge from the research I was doing on the first book. So I just sort of put that, that research aside and came back to it once I'd finished Wedlocked. Um, but in, with so much of this material, whether I was in um, North Carolina or Mississippi or at the National Archives in D.C. or in Maryland, or even in the Beinecke Library in, um, in New Haven, many times I was opening up uh, really fragile pieces of paper for the first time since they had been put into an archive in the 1860s. And, um, I mean, I, I get choked up even talking about it now. Sometimes a hair would fall out. Or um, I would see a smudge of a thumbprint or a palm print because, you know, writing with ink was kind of a messy enterprise back then. Um, and so this, these, these evidences of lives and of, of freedom, new freedom, 
were incredibly compelling to me. So I, um, I wanted the book to as much as possible be told through the voices and experiences of newly freed people and not just secondary sources. And that's not easy because, of course, uh, most freed people could not read or write. Um, they weren't literate, but there were places um, where you could find you could find them um, and what it meant uh, for them to be freed uh, in the archives themselves. No, the book is um, the book is beautiful, especially because you have really lovely reproductions of some of the documents and some of the extraordinary photographs. Before we get to the two cases, the audience will have very, very different. Uh, remembrances or knowledge of um, what happened at the end of emancipation and the um, conflict between what it is that Lincoln and some of uh, and his staff were thinking and what then came to happen with Johnson. So maybe we would start with uh, the Sea Island example and um, and, and both sort of think about some of the general and also the specifics of this case. So people can understand the importance of this case. I think, I think it could go, if we just talk about the two cases, I think people might think that after emancipation, that there was just this kind of uh, um, autonomous, uh, self-governing or uh, freed people. And that wasn't the case. So if you could start us off with that, that'd be great. Absolutely. Um, so much of the Civil War was both a military project and a humanitarian project. And this book, in so many ways, tries to uh, document that. So as the Northern troops were moving through the South, in like, even as early as 1861, um, through military occupation, just by the mil Northern military's presence, they accomplished um, the emancipation of enslaved people in the in the places where they were um, setting up camps. So the Sea Islands provide a very interesting example in 1861 of northern the northern military arriving on the islands, the uh, white slave owners fleeing to the mainland, and they took a a few of what they called their servants, their favorite servants, with them. But by and large, there were. 10 or more thousand um, enslaved black people on the sea islands, uh, uh, on the plantations that had been abandoned by the white uh, slave owners. And the military sh is there um, with this body of people, many of whom were, you know, sick, hungry, destitute, unclothed in, in really dire circumstances. And today we would see them as refugees and see this as a kind of refugee resettlement project, but we didn't really describe formerly enslaved or black people in human terms like that. They were described as contraband. So the Northern troops seized this uh, contraband, the people who were at the Sea Islands, and said to them, we'd like you to keep working, um, but for a wage, not as enslaved, uh, and the reason the northern military wanted them to keep working on the cotton plantations and the rice plantations in the Sea Islands is that Lincoln was running out of money, and he needed the resources that would um, come from selling the cotton and the other crops on the Sea Islands. So the plan initially was keep the formerly enslaved people working. They knew how to work the, the plantations. 
uh, and then the proceeds from those crops would go to fund the war. And by and large, the black people there were like, I don't think so. You know, we, we're not interested in um, creating profits for you or for some government we've never heard of. Um, we're fine here. We'll, we'd like to have small plots of land where we can grow crops we can eat and be independent of you all. Uh, and so there was a kind of critical conversation that was going back and forth between the military officials and the um, freed people of the Sea Islands for a short time. Um, but they eventually got forced, the, the freed people, into uh, returning back to the plant, not back to the fields, um, uh, and were promised a wage. But what's, what's critically interesting is that those military officials, the, the generals and the more subordinate officers, were communicating back to Washington a very clear message they were hearing from the black people of the Sea Islands, which is that we need land. We want independence from white people in the longer run, and this land is owed to us. And Rufus Saxton, who was the general who was in charge of running the military campaign there, uh, at, and the Sea Islands heard that and developed a program where they would seize the, the land that the uh, former plantation owners, slave owners, had not paid taxes on. And then much of that land would be set aside as literally as reparations for uh, the formerly enslaved people. And he even used that word, reparations. We think of it today as a kind of modern term but very much there was an understanding, certainly among formerly enslaved people, of black people, but also of many of these military officers, that something more, something much more than mere emancipation was owed the black people of the Sea Islands. And where this generated for him, for Saxton, was that reparations were owed both as a backward-looking and as a forward-looking matter. So backward looking in the sense of a kind of repair for the horror of enslavement, you know, the kidnapping, the middle passage, the, the indignity of, of, um, of, of being, a, being property, not a person, the violence, the rape, the death, the family separation, all of that. And certainly unpaid wages, but that almost figured less than the, the sort of, um, assault on the very idea of their humanity that reparations were designed to address. But of equal importance was the idea that some material resources were owed to the freed people, not just in the Sea Islands, but everywhere, so that real free lives could be possible. So as a forward-looking matter, the idea was that you can't be truly free if you're abjectly poor. Um, you need something in the terms of resources, and that would be both an education, you know, healthcare to be sure, but also the land. And the land was really seen as what people wanted and what was owed to them uh, at that time. And so that project um, was undertaken in the Sea Islands and also in Davis Bend in Mississippi. That's the second half of the book. Um, and the uh, allocation of land in plots that were large enough that people could go crops um, in complex family units, not just nuclear families, but um, complex kinship groups. Um, this all took place in the Sea Islands, and life was beginning to look quite different. And the, the order that Saxton issued 
um, and that was being followed was one that not only allocated land to the formerly enslaved people, but also said white people cannot set foot here, that you all need to heal yourselves, heal your community, build new lives as free people without us around. And that was very much reflecting what, what, what black people were we're asking for, indeed, we're demanding is, you know, just we, we don't need you to help us. We need you to get out of the way. So, we, so no, go, you go ahead. No, no, you go ahead. I'm just going to fast forward very quickly. So this was Lincoln was reluctantly being dragged into this policy. He was in many ways always following the leadership of others around what the end of slavery might look like. Uh, and then, of course, the end of the war happens. Lincoln is promptly assassinated. Uh, and Andrew Johnson becomes president, one of the first acts in office that he undertook was to grant amnesty to the former slave owners and restore all of their uh, property except in slaves. And so all of this land that had been allocated and promised with titles to freed people was violently stolen from them and returned to the people who had formerly owned them. And then they were forced to enter into year-long labor contracts, very often with the people who had enslaved them before. So that's what freedom looked like for formerly enslaved people, was another form of bondage, which is part of why I describe them as being freed, but not truly free. No, and the um, just to ask a couple of little small questions, in, in terms of the Saxton plan to give... Uh, two acres, two working hands. I, I was wondering, at, at one point in the book, um, single women are excluded from, I think it's the Sherman land titles, but I was wondering when they were thinking about working hands, were they thinking about men as the heads of families? Were they thinking of all working adults? Well, what's interesting is I have a, a lot of um photographs. I actually just took them with my camera when I was in the archives, but photographs of the actual titles that freed people received in the Sea Islands and elsewhere. And very often it was women equally and men, equal to men. And what's what's worth noting is that at this time, 1861, two, three, in that period, white women could not own land. The Married Women's Property Acts during that time made uh, white women um, uh, the legal part of the legal entity that was her husband. So they did not have a separate legal identity, but black women were getting title to land uh, in, in great numbers through this land allocation and reparations project. So I think that's quite interesting. That changes once the land is taken back and they have to enter into labor contracts after Lincoln is assassinated, and only the male heads of households were allowed to sign those labor contracts on behalf of the whole family. So it locked women back into marriages and, um, uh, and to being subordinate to their husbands for the purposes of their labor in a way that had not been anticipated before. Now, the fact that Black people are denied or enslaved Black people are denied coverture uh, denied any sort of legal recognition of the very creative ways in which they found ways to marry even while being enslaved. It is, it's remarkable how that sort of um, 
then affects Black women's ability to not be under coverture and to have some of these kinds of um, rights extended to them that would not have been available for for many married women in um, in the U.S. Yeah. What I find fascinating about the this chapter in the book is how explicit they were about reparation. They understood, as you said, what they were doing. They understood that they were making reparations at multiple levels, but they were also trying to create autonomy and independence through property. And throughout the book, you see property rights as very, very important and different than the kinds of rights that may have been granted through uh, the 14th Amendment, for example. And would you say just a little bit, of, you, you've already started it, of the this idea of you know being able to grow, raise chickens, grow corn, be independent, of why property was seen as so important by the freed people? Well, I think, you know, I still hear this today in talking to um, African-American colleagues and activists who are doing reparations work is that having a home, having a place, having a place where you belong and it is yours is fundamentally important to a kind of civic subjectivity and civic belonging. And the part of the precarity of African Americans in our country since, you know, well before the end of the Civil War has been um, the inability to really say that this is my home this is where I belong, and just this is mine. And so you, heard, I heard this through all of so many of the documents I saw at that time, that a sense of place, and it's you know the Sea Islands are breathtakingly beautiful, but that sense of place as theirs, it's where their their people had lived, it's where their parents, their grandparents, some of their children had been buried. Um, there were, I, I don't know if you remember this at one quote in the book, but there were, were a couple of African-American women who said to the white people, the white military officials, and then some of the missionaries that came down, you people just have a very strange relationship to land, right? The way that you see it is kind of disposable and um, fungible, and you can trade it between you. And there was almost the way we sometimes talk about Native Americans is seeing land as sacred, um, so did, in a different sort of um, valence, so did so many of the, the freed people, certainly in the Sea Islands. The, the land would feed them. Um, uh, it, it, they knew it. They knew how to work it. Um, and it was where they belonged. And it was not where white people belonged. Um, before we leave the Sea Island example, one of the threads in that chapter has to do with whether somebody should be brought in to sort of morally guide, in other words, white people will be necessary to sort of train the newly freed people to do these things, as opposed to being given property will in fact allow people to build something themselves. And I was wondering if you could just tease that out a little bit more. Well, it, it, you know, the military officials were there on a military mission. You know, they had a war to fight, and um, would they realize that this enormous humanitarian project that they also had on their hands was distracting them from their military mission? So they, in, they, made, they put a call out to uh, Christian evangelicals or Christian do-gooders, anti-slavery folks up in Philadelphia, New York, and Boston. 
and uh, hundreds of them came down uh, to the sea islands, the women to teach uh, reading and writing and civilized behavior to the freed people, and the men to uh, run the plantations, which was preposterous. These were, you know, gentlemen from uh, Philadelphia, New York, and Boston who had no, the, not the least idea of how to run a plantation, how to how to plant co- cotton or or um, right. rice. Um, but anyway, it, the idea was that somebody of some knowledge and education should be in charge. Um, and but with respect to what the women were doing, not only were they teaching uh, the freed people of in the Sea Islands how to read and write, um, the general idea is that they were also trying to cultivate in them a kind of civilized um, set of manners that might prepare them later for civic um, belonging in the level of citizenship or something like that. And so they were teaching the black women how to put uh, curtains up in their homes, um, how to wear hoop skirts, how to do their hair, and all sorts of sort of bourgeois, um, domestic ways of being that could demonstrate that they were civilized in in ways that they couldn't be, uh, or perhaps didn't have the capacity to be from the perspective of these missionaries, while the black people were enslaved. So there was a was there was definitely a. Uh, a, a civilizing project going on as much as one that I think the black people felt was a project that would, fr- through which they would gain greater freedom. So the second um, case study that you have in the book is at Davis Bend, which is highly ironic because this is in part the home of Jefferson Davis. And so it's, it's, it's remarkable to see this as a site of autonomy and self-determination. Um, can you set the scene here with the, the, the Jefferson and Joseph Davis uh, estate and how this um, uh, version of allowing people to uh, rule themselves plays out in both similar and very different ways? Well, Joseph and his younger brother, Jefferson Davis, owned a plot, a significant and very fertile plot of land right outside of Vicksburg, Mississippi. It was on a turn in the Mississippi River um, and through years and years of the accretion of of river silt um, and soil, uh, it produced this very um, verdant place for planting. And Joseph Davis was significantly older than his brother Jefferson um, and uh, set the tone on the plantation much more than Jeff did. He was off being a politician and um, uh, off in other parts of the state more frequently than Joseph was. But even during the period when, um, when they enslaved substantial numbers of people on this plantation, the Davis slaves enjoyed... Uh, rights and liberties and resources that you really didn't see in almost any other plantation in the South at that time. They had their own court system that I found really unusual. And there are a few extant records from that court system on Saturdays where enslaved people could bring uh, complaints, grievances against other enslaved people. And there would be um, uh, one of the black people on the plantation would sit as judge and listen to the evidence and hand out uh, uh, sentences and uh, uh, verdicts on whether there, someone had actually been wronged. 
Um, and so they had a kind of sense of justice that looked very much like the court system you would have seen in Vicksburg for white people in so many respects. The Davises also offered their enslaved people dental care, um, which I don't know anywhere else in the South that that was true. Um, so they were they were an unusual uh, set of you know human owning entrepreneurs uh, who implemented a set of practices for their enslaved people that in some ways set them up to be independent um, once they were emancipated uh, in ways that people in other plantation settings perhaps were less um, poised just because they were so uh, devastatingly treated in those other contexts. So they were treated a little bit better on on the Davis plantation. So as soon as uh, General Grant came down the Mississippi River and um, the siege of Vicksburg took place in 1863 in the summer, um, uh, the the white uh, managers of the Davis plantations fled. Uh, Of course, Jeff was off running the Confederate uh, war, the war from the Confederate side. Um, And there were several uh, formerly enslaved people who... Um, were ready to run the plantation very easily at that point because they'd been doing so all along. So the transition from enslavement to to being freed was pretty smooth on the Davis plantation. And so too, there was this sense that they would get allocated those uh, those lands and live independent lives. Um, But that tragically went awry, as uh, was the case with with the Sea Islands after uh, Lincoln was assassinated. Um, so it's a it's a slightly different um, story in the lead up to emancipation than we saw in the Sea Islands, but in some ways another utopian experiment in black independence and freedom that was um, squashed was quashed uh, once uh, Andrew Johnson became president. And one of the distinctions you make in the book is that is that the people in Davis Bend were not just governed by law, that, that they made the law, that they were the police, they were the judges, they were the jurors. And that created a very different kind of legal autonomy than even in the Sea Island case, r- radical as that one is. And I thought that was an incredibly interesting distinction that gets that gets made in the book. Um, what happened to, at Davis Bend? How, how did it come to an end? Well, interestingly enough, one of the um, leaders of of the enslaved people, the formerly enslaved people who had been running the plantation um, before military occupation, continued to run the plantation afterwards. And he ended up buying the plantation from Joseph Davis and was um, paying him small amounts on on a loan in order to buy it. Um, for a number of years, for several years after um, the end of the Civil War, um, never really was able to pay much in the way of principal. But he had the uh, idea that he owned it. What he didn't know, I think Joe Davis must have known, he was an, an old man at that point, um, but, but um, it was illegal for black people to own property uh, in Mississippi in that immediate post-war period. This was part of the black codes that came into uh, effect at that time. So he had an invalid title, but even more importantly, when Davis died, his sons inherited the property. They could have forgiven the loan and deeded the land to the black people who were living there, but they chose not to. 
And so several of the leaders of the Davis Bend plantation, black leaders, moved just a little bit north of Vicksburg and founded Mound Bayou, which was one of the first all-black communities that is, is still celebrated in Mississippi as one of the all-black communities where kind of black freedom was possible that wasn't just in the um, uh, built out of the aftermath of a, of a plantation where military occupation had taken place, but they actually founded this town themselves. It's both so inspiring and so sad at the same time, because this is such a success there. It's an agricultural success. It's a legal success. It's a, it's a moral success. And yet it ends, it ends so badly, um, which, which really brings you to, I mean, this book is, you could just write a book, obviously, about these two chapters, and it would be it would be terrific. But that's not really what the book is about. In a sense, you're using these case studies as a way for us to rethink what might be possible now. Um, so I'd like to take us into, into chapter three, in which you you detail the the way that um, the 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 Johnson administration and the laws that were made created really peasants, propertyless people who would be a labor force but would not own their own property. So even though they had some legal rights, which were disintegrating um, as 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 uh, Reconstruction went on, they still didn't have the kind of power that they needed, in, which would have come from the wealth that would have come with the property, to really be equals in the society. So you, you lay out a couple of examples that you think really, really help us um, understand what we might do now. And I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit um, about those examples, um, hopefully about Fannie Wright, too. I found that part really interesting, uh, so that we can get to this conversation about what do we do now? Well, uh, some people have said to me, well, of course, we can't re-seize the Sea Islands, uh, you know, Hilton Head and all of the beautiful, very, very wealthy communities of the Sea Islands and hand them over to the, the descendants of enslaved people. And I think that's right. Um, you know, so many people who had originally been or their descendants had originally been enslaved in the Sea Islands have moved elsewhere um, they're not going to move back there. Um, but I also think that's too, um, it's not ambitious enough of a, uh, of a project to limit reparations today only to those who can show a genetic de um, uh, descendancy from people who were enslaved. Because I think uh, African Americans in this country all bear the badge of inferiority that rendered black people enslavable in the first place. So what I urge in the book is that we, um, and I'll, I'm skipping here to the very end, um, is that we, in, that we increase the estate tax. Um, we're in the midst of the greatest intergenerational transfer of wealth we've ever seen on this planet. Uh, so the, the, the greatest generation that is, as they like to call themselves, that are now in their 70s and 80s are, are passing away. And this is a generation that accumulated a kind of wealth um, that we had, that it was the the benefit of being in this economy in the United States at a time when real estate gained so much in value, and so so much of that wealth that's being passed down now is uh, wealth that that 
came from buying land, sitting tight, selling it, buying more land and kind of speculating in that way. Black people never got in on that deal uh, for the most part. And certainly we can go back to the end of slavery where land should have been reallocated and other kinds of resources as a form of reparations. But we can fast forward through the black codes, through Jim Crow, through government policies um, uh, that redlining that favored veterans uh, returning from the war, but only uh, white veterans um, uh, in terms of loans that were made possible to um, a whole generation. And, and so the, what I recommend is that we capture some of that ill-earned gains from white privilege that, um, that, are, that are in people's estates and put that in a trust to fund community land trusts so that the, that the solution isn't just writing checks to individual black people, although I'm sure there are many, and I know there are many who would favor that as well, but that one of the things we'd think about doing with the reallocating of resources is empowering black communities, not just enriching black individuals. And what I like about community land trusts is it builds on an idea of place, of community ownership of land, and it takes housing out of the speculative market so that land becomes Mean comes to mean something else in the community as uh, apart from individual wealth generation, but also community um, wealth generation, community enrichment. No, and there's also there's look the the thread throughout the book is so clear that in fact um, it isn't simply about individual ownership; it is about community ownership. And so the way the book ends, which is emphasizing that what's needed is not a cash stimulus to each individual, but an investment in something that will will grant a different kind of autonomy. And obviously you're not recommending an agrarian um, uh, a movement, which but but you tell a story that if if things had gone differently in uh, after the Civil War, one could have seen growing out of experiments like the Sea Islands and Davis Bend, a kind of strong agriculturally based property ownership that would have um, accumulated wealth and then diversified because people don't always just stay on the land. And now I think you're asking for thinking differently about collective land ownership. And there's such consistency between the past and what you're recommending for yeah. the present. Well, you know, I draw in the book from Paul St. Amour, the literary theorist's um, idea of reemplotment. And uh, in in Paul, I've come to know quite well, and I really admire his work. And um, besides thinking deeply about the relationship between history and memory and how we have these usable pasts, um, uh, histories that we can return to where we can see a different plot was possible. And what's so interesting about it is still available. That history is not over, um, but it's actually available for us to see about how to chart a different future by looking at where that different past could have taken us. And so returning to the history in the book is designed to say, look, a different history of freedom is possible, not just mere emancipation and then being locked into a kind of peasantry and second-class status in the United States, but in fact, they then imagined a, um, a, a distinction between being freed and being free. 
They imagined reparations as something that were necessary to freedom. And, and we can recover that different plot of freedom through some of the measures I'm talking about. But I also think just education of, of having people know these stories. So what, what kind of response are you getting as you talk to people about your book? Um, what kind of responses are you getting from the two case studies? And what kind of a response are you getting for your reframing of reparations and your suggestion about estate tax and, and wealth and trend? using, funding this through the estate tax on this fund of wealth? You know, I've been talking a lot about the book and in places all over the country and in different communities. And for the most part, I'm not going to do academic talks at a university where I just yakety yak about the book. Um, most what I have asked people to do is to, to try to set up panels in the community with me engaging with people who were doing land-based reparations or equity work in a community, whether it's Baltimore or Denver or Chicago or Detroit or, you know, across the country. Um, and that's been super interesting for me because I learned so much about what's possible uh, and what's being, what's really taking place in these different communities. So sometimes I, I give a talk about the book and I talk about the estate tax and I get the usual pushback from white people you know, that's, I, my family didn't enslave anybody. Uh, I don't have responsibility for this. Sure, I'm glad to talk about it, but I shouldn't have to pay for it. Um, I get a lot of other white people who were, were like, wow, I didn't know that history. That is so compelling. Um, mm-hmm. I need to rethink my contemporary relationship to freedom based on black people's historical relationship to unfreedom. Um, I, I do get some black audiences or individuals in black audiences who are, are thrilled to have a white ally. Um, and to, and their response is it's time that white people talk about this too. And that's part of why I wrote the book is I, I feel very strongly that reparations and slavery is not just something that is, uh, the responsibility of black people to talk about. And I've had a couple of pretty hostile uh, questions or feedback from uh, African American activists who hmm. who say, "Who were you to tread into this? These are not your stories." Uh, particularly with the historical research, they feel I'm stealing black voices, and that provoked a really interesting conversation about who the archives belong to, who has the authority and the legitimacy to 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 write and speak about those archives. Um, so I'd say it's been a range, <laughs> a range of reactions. And it's part of a, of a wider conversation of who can paint a picture and who can write whose story. So, uh, you know, obviously it's, it's, we're at a, a moment in which we are thinking about that. Yeah. Uh, I, I want to say something that you, you, in the book, you say that, uh, you talk about Toni Morrison and you say that you don't have, you know, a thimble of her writing talent, or I can't remember the expression that you used. And and I just want to say to listeners that I haven't read a book this well-written in a long time. Um, this is very clear, elegant, and eloquent prose, and it includes phrases and distinctions that, that you will remember. They will make, there will, they will make their way into your brain and they will make your way, I think, um, 
into your scholarship and your thinking. So Catherine, I just want to thank you for such a, a, a terrific book. And it's also short. So much gets done in a very, very um, uh, compact book. Um, and I want to recommend it to everyone who's listening. Oh, well, I have to say that is the greatest honor for me to have you say that about the writing and about the book itself. Um, I, uh, I just thank you so much, Susan. It's, um, it's a great honor to be uh, with you and have, to have you read it. And um, thank you so much. Well, Repair, Redeeming the Promise of Abolition is published by Haymarket Books. You can get it on the Haymarket Books website. Catherine, do you have a brick and mortar store near you that you would recommend people pick up the book? I do. And I I will note you can get it for 50% off at Haymarket on their website. But there's also a bookstore. I live in Harlem and there's a bookstore up the street from me that is just wonderful. A little community bookstore called Word Up, W-O-R-D Up. And they uh, have just moved a lot of their sales online. So if you want to buy it from a bookstore, I would really recommend Word Up. Well, thanks so much for taking the time to discuss the book. And um, best of luck with the other audiences that you're talking to. It's great that you're doing the the talking to people as well as here to academics and um, other students of politics. And thank you so much for taking your time to be with us today. Oh, it's my great pleasure. Thank you. 